Welcome back to the research track. I'm very pleased to welcome our last researcher of the day, but come back because we have three more tomorrow. But right now we have Dr. Sriram Vaidyanathan, most recently of the Porteous Lab at Stanford University. After completing his PhD in 2016, Dr. Vaidyanathan joined the Porteous Lab at Stanford to further his interest in applying the CRISPR-Cas9 based methods to develop therapies for monogenic diseases. While there, he spearheaded a multidisciplinary team from four separate labs at Stanford to develop an autologous airway stem cell therapy for cystic fibrosis. He is currently working on extending this platform to develop a genome editing uh, platform that restores CFTR function in airway cells affected by any CF mutation including those that cannot be treated using mod modulators. His goal is to develop methods to transplant corrected stem cells back into the airway, thus enabling a durable treatment for CF upper airway disease. Today, he presents transplantation of gene-edited upper airway basal stem cells in immunocompromised mice using fibrinogen-based scaffolds to treat CF sinus disease. Welcome. Um, thank you so much for the really kind introduction. I would like to start by thanking uh, CFRI for this amazing conference and for their support for our uh, research. Um, so today I'll be presenting our work on uh, genome editing upper airway basal stem cells and then trying to transplant them into the sinuses of mouse models uh, to eventually treat CF sinus disease. So I don't think I need to introduce CF to this audience. The only sort of genetic fact I wanted to want to remind everybody is that CF is an autosomal recessive disorder. So uh, each patient has two mutated copies of CFTR, one from each parent. And so when you think about this from a therapeutic perspective, uh, restoring even one copy of uh, the correct CFTR gene in a cell should be sufficient to treat uh, CF patients. Um, and as uh, many of you know, uh, CF can be caused by a wide variety of mutations that have been reported in CFTR. Uh, so depending on how the mutation affects the production or the folding or the function of the protein, uh, the severity of the disease may be different. So you have highly, you have mutations that cause highly morbid versions of CF. Uh, and then uh, on the reverse side, you also have mutations that cause less severe versions of CF. Uh, Delta 508 is a mutation that everybody's familiar with here. Uh, it's uh, the most commonly observed mutation in, uh, and that's observed in about 70 to 90% of CF patients, at least in Europe and North America. Um, and so the remarkable uh, aspect of CF is that over the past 70 years, there's been a tenfold increase in the lifespan of uh, CF patients. And a lot of this has been due to better uh, ways of improving or improving nutrition in these patients. So first by the introduction of pancreatic enzymes, and then uh, by uh, methods to sort of prevent and treat infection. So uh, the development of better and better antibiotics. So the combination of this, uh, of these approaches improves survival from less than five years uh, to, to about 40 years. And then, uh, at, but the other point to note here is that these approaches did not 
directly restore CFTR function. Now that has been achieved using modulator therapies over the past decade, and we're all excited about this. And it's, this, this has been an incredible achievement and uh, it's predicted to increase survival in patients uh, dramatically over the course of the next few years. Uh, so these CFTR modulator therapies are incredibly effective in uh, preventing uh, lung exacerbations. Uh, that said, there is a defined class of patients that uh, cannot benefit from these therapeutics because they have mutations that are not amenable for treatment using modulators. Uh, and then there are also patients who show heterogeneous responses. So they have mutations that should respond to CFTR modulators, but don't really respond uh, in, a, in a way we would predict. Uh, and then there are complications and contraindications associated with the use of modulators. And lastly, they must be taken daily for the life of a patient. Uh, so, so there are some limitations. And so genetic therapies are one modality that hold the promise for a long-term treatment for all CF patients. Um, and, and as we think about genetic therapies and all CF patients, I, I just want to spend a couple of slides uh, looking at you know, the possibility of whether we're missing CF patients. So CF, as we all know, has been best characterized in the Caucasian or white population, where about one in 2,500 to 3,500 newborns are, are diagnosed with CF. So, uh, and we estimate about 70 to 100,000 CF patients in Europe and North America. And it's thought to be much rarer in other uh, races. So about one in 17,000 African-Americans have been reported to have CF, and one in about 31,000 Asian-Americans have been uh, reported to have CF. Um, and it was at this point we noticed uh, so several South Asian CF patients at Stanford because it's an age, it's an area with a very high Asian population. And this sort of picked my interest in uh, this was right around the time of the pandemic. And so we need so this was a really nice dry lab sort of project, uh, which was done in collaboration with Zach Sellers. So together we requested data from CF registries in the UK and Canada. And we particularly focused on these registries because they classify South Asians. So uh, South Asia is the region around India and Pakistan. So we requested data specifically on from registries which classify South Asians separately. And we looked at the prevalence of CF in South Asians versus people from other parts of Asia. And what we found was that about 60 to 90% of Asian CF patients in all of our data sets, so whether we looked at the Stanford data set, the UK data set, or the Canadian data set, uh, about 60 to 90% of Asian patients tend to be uh, of South Asian origin. And so based on this, we estimate the prevalence of about 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 20,000 uh, South Asians having CF. So then the next question that was uh, in our minds was whether these patients were amenable for treatment using modulators. Uh, and so we first started by looking at the mutations that affect this population. And we noticed that only 50% of these patients have at least one allele with Delta FIO8. So then the natural question extension is whether the other mutations in this population are amenable for treatment using modulators. And so when we looked at this, only 50% of patients in, in these data sets had two mutations that were amenable for treatment using modulators, which means, you know, it's good news for the 50% that can be put on modulators, but it's, uh, you know, it, it tells us that there's more work to be done in, uh, in, in developing therapies that are applicable for the other 50% of this population. Now, this is not unique just to the Asian population. So other uh, researchers have shown that significant fractions of Hispanic and Black CF patients also have mutations that are not responsive to, to modulators at levels that are higher than what you would see in the white population. Uh, and this boils 
mostly down to the 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 type of mutations that are present in this pop in these populations. Uh, and I just want to take one further step. So we look at uh, the the registry data in uh, Europe and North America, and we you know we always see that the ten there's about ten percent of patients that don't respond to these modulators, and a lot of these uh, patients tend to be from these sort of other ethnicities. But I also want to remind everybody that eighty percent of the world's population lives in Asia, Africa, or South America. So if you really take the prevalence metrics in, that have been reported in these populations and apply it to the global population, there should be about 200 to 300,000 patients, uh, uh, CF patients in the world. And I would estimate about 40% of, the, of these patients would still need therapeutics that are uh, not modulators or that are new modulators that maybe uh, are, or, or new therapeutic modalities that um, can restore CFGR function in the presence of these uh, mutations that are not responsive to modulators. Uh, and, and so with that, I think there's definitely an interest in genetic therapies which hold the promise for uh, a, a modulator agnostic approach for treating CF. Uh, and uh, the previous talks, uh, there were uh, so there was one from Dr. McCray and Dr. Jane, and then uh, the most recent one from Dr. Jonas, uh, they all talked about different in vivo uh, gene therapy modalities these. Uh, now, it, the one in gene therapy that's been tried in the clinic is what I would I call transient gene therapies. So the idea here is to overexpress CFTR from uh, the terminally differentiated epithelial cells in uh, the airways of CF patients. Now, this has been attempted previously in the clinic, but uh, they did not show durable benefit in these trials. And, and mostly the challenge that's been recognized is the presence of thick mucus in these patients, which limits the, uh, the, the amount of the epithelium that's, that can be successfully transduced. And as you heard from the, the previous talks, there's mul there are multiple attempts at developing new technologies that would uh, transduce this epithelium much more effectively. Uh, but that's not the focus of my talk. Uh, what we wanted to see was whether there was an alternative solution that we could uh, come up with using genome editing. And so our idea was to take airway stem cells from uh, CF patients, either from the nose and sinuses or from the bronchi, uh, and then gene correct them ex vivo using CRISPR-Cas9 uh, and other reagents, and then transplant these cells back into patients. The advantages here are that we don't have to worry about immune reactions mediated either against Cas9 or any of the viral vectors. You can directly target the stem cells uh, of these organs. And so you could hope for a durable cure. And then you can characterize the product really well before you administer these to patients. The one challenge here is that airway stem cell transplantation has never been done in humans. So recognizing this, we wanted to start with a focus on CF sinus disease. So from a clinical standpoint, CF sinus disease affects most CF patients. And then CF sinuses act as a reservoir for pathogens that have been shown to seed subsequent lung infections, uh, especially in uh, transplanted patients. Uh, and from a strategic standpoint, CF sinuses are easy to access. And then ablation of the sinus epithelium is routinely performed uh, endoscopically and it's safe. Uh, and, and so we uh, so we thought we could piggyback on this sort of a, a surgical ablation to then transplant our corrected airway stem cells. Uh, and our hope is that we would take the tools developed from this uh, uh, 
effort to then develop uh, strategies to treat CF lung disease in the future. So our platform looks something like this, where we isolate upper airway basal stem cells from patients, expand them in vitro, edit them using Cas9 and AV, uh, put them on a biomaterial, and then hopefully transplant them into patients in the future. Um, so when we started this project, we started with a two-pronged strategy. Uh, so the first strategy was the Delta FIO8 strategy, where we uh, showed the correction of the Delta FIO8 mutation, which affects most CF patients, as we know. Uh, and then the second strategy was to insert the entire cDNA of CFTR and exon 1 uh, to, to restore CFTR function in all CF patients, uh, regardless of the causative mutation. So... Uh, when we started this project, uh, there had been previous reports where uh, they had attempted to correct CF-causing mutations, particularly Delta FIO8. So the first ever study uh, using CRISPR-Cas9 to correct a CF-causing mutation was done in intestinal organoids. And then there were subsequent studies done in iPSCs. Now, in both of these studies, the correction efficiencies were low, and then they were using sort of uh, at, uh, selection methods using pyromycin, which are not readily clinically applicable. And then there are challenges associated with the generation of airway cells from iPSCs. That's still a work in progress. That's uh, it, it's progressed a lot, but we're kind of still not there yet. Uh, and so when we started this question, our uh, started this project, our question was how we how do we correct airway stem cells and how do we achieve 10 to 100 fold higher levels of correction than what had been reported previously? And so before we go too much further, I just want to remind everybody about the different uh, sort of pathways involved in uh, gene correction. I know the previous talks covered it, but just to cover my basis, I, I, I wanted to remind everybody. So Cas9 is a, uh, a bacterial enzyme that complexes to a guide RNA. Now this guide RNA uh, uh, is what gives Cas9 the specificity. So uh, if a guide RNA matches the sequence specific to the CFTR locus, then that guide is going to enable Cas9 to induce a break in the CFTR locus. Now, this break is repaired using the endogenous repair machinery in the cell. So one mechanism is called non-homologous end joining. I call this the lazy pathway. So the cell assumes that no information is lost here, and it just pastes the break, which results in errors that are insertions or deletions, resulting in a knockout of the gene. So this is not the pathway we want. The pathway we want is homologous recombination, where if you supply a correction template that has homology arms that mimic the cell, you can essentially trick the cell into incorporating any exogenous information into that break site. And so for this process, we use Cas9 RNP, so the protein formulation. We use a chemically modified guide RNA, which has been previously shown uh, uh, in the previous, uh, in the Porteus lab to be uh, more effective at uh, uh, improving Cas9 activity. And then we use an AAV adeno-associated virus to shuttle in the homologous recombination template into these cells. So using this approach, we first corrected the Delta FIO8 mutation in uh, both sinus and bronchial derived stem cells in patients, and that paper was published in 2020. Uh, and and uh, the, the sort of second uh, project we did on this topic was the insertion of the CFTR cDNA in exon 1. Uh, and just to reiterate, uh, we were interested in the strategy because it's mutation agnostic, and uh, 
it's particularly relevant for patients who are not amenable for modulator therapies right now. Uh, the challenge here is that the CFTR-cDNA is rather large. And uh, when we started this project, it was unclear if insertion of the cDNA was going to be sufficient to get CFTR expression from the endogenous locus. Uh, and so uh, if you look at the CFTR cDNA, it's about 4,500 base pairs long. And when you look at the packaging capacity of AV, it's about 4,800 base pairs long. So you don't really have space for uh, including sort of long homology arms that are ne necessary for efficient homologous recombination. And you also don't have room for a selectable marker. So here we used a split strategy that, been, that had been previously developed in the lab, where we used uh, a guide RNA to insert a break in exon 1. And then we have a correction template that codes for the first half of the CFTR cDNA. And then we added in a guide RNA at the end here. And then we um, have a second correction template that has the second half of the CFTR cDNA. So when the second break happens, that break is repaired using uh, the second half of the CFTR cDNA. Uh, and then that template also has a, a PGK promoter that's driving a truncated CD19. CD19 is a protein that's normally found in B cells. What we've done here is we have truncated the intracellular portion of the protein so that you just have a surface epitope that's going to serve as an enrichment tag. And so the corrected CFTR locus in our uh, strategy would have the corrected CFTR cDNA, and it would also have the truncated CD19 tag that's going to help us enrich for these cells. So as you might imagine, because it's a split strategy, the efficiency of correction is initially low. So we only have about 3 to 5% corrected cells. So here in this example, it's about 3.5%. Uh, but then because we have this uh, CD19 tag, uh, we can use flow cytometry or magnetic bead-based separation to then enrich out the corrected cells. And so we tested the strategy in uh, airway stem cells obtained from the sinuses and bronchi of 14 different donors with CF. And in all of these cases, we were able to obtain an enriched population of corrected cells uh, that had at least 50% corrected cells. Uh, and so the next question in everybody's mind uh, is whether uh, this is sufficient to restore CFTR function. So to test that, we took these corrected cells, and then we differentiated them on an air-liquid interface. And then we used an uh, osing chamber assay to look at the CFTR function in the airway epithelia generated by these cells. Uh, and so just to sort of orient everybody, uh, so here we have a, a C, uh, an airway epithelium. And then in a osing chamber assay, we're measuring the transport of chloride ions across this epithelium. So in a normal wild type uh, uh, airway epithelium, you would have a, a certain level of chloride transport. And this transport is reduced in airway epithelia generated from uh, stem cells from CF donors. Uh, and so in the Ussing assay, we uh, use certain small molecules that are activators and inhibitors of ion channels to probe for CFTR function. So we first add amylaride, which blocks ENAC channels, and then we add forskolin, which activates CFTR, and then we add CFTR inhibitor, which then inhibits CFTR specifically. And then we look for the drop in uh, the current induced by uh, CFTR inhibitor, uh, and, and, and then we quantify and compare this across samples to see if we have restored CFTR function. So in this example here, you have airway epithelia from a CF donor where you don't have a response to forskolin or uh, CFGR inhibitor. 
And then the cells from the same donor were then corrected and then uh, differentiated. And then when we tested those samples, you can see a really nice robust restoration of forskolin and CFTR inhibitor function. And so we did this in multiple samples. So here is the summary of all the samples where we tested this in sinus-derived uh, stem cells. And you can see that the CFTR function is very nicely restored and uh, it's uh, at the level that's comparable to the CFTR function we observed in non-CF controls. And then here you have data from all the bronchial samples where, again, you have CFTR function that is comparable to the CFTR function that we saw in bronchial cells obtained from non-CF donors. And so all of this work has been previously published. Uh, and I, so I just wanted to reiterate that it is possible to insert the complete CFTR cDNA in the endogenous uh, uh, CFTR locus and enrich for these corrected cells. And we do observe a, a non-CF level restoration of uh, CFTR function using the approach. So then the topic of today is what? how do we transplant these airway stem cells at least back into the sinuses so that we can start uh, uh, with the therapy for CF sinus disease. Uh, so when we were thinking about this, we recognized two factors. So one is the need for a delivery vehicle. So in our preliminary studies, when we tried to transplant these cells uh, into immunocompromised mice, we were just trying to squirt the cells into the sinuses. And then the mice wouldn't like uh, the introduction of a foreign material into their nose, so they would sort of try to expel them, and so all your hard work would just be on the table after a few minutes. Uh, and so we realized we needed some sort of a delivery vehicle that would hold the cells in place. And then the second question is that of a conditioning regimen. So when you're thinking of transplanting stem cells, uh, you need to get rid of the existing stem cells that are specific to that organ. So if you're thinking of a bone marrow transplantation, you have certain conditioning regimens that kill the existing bone marrow stem cells in that uh, in, in the patient uh, so that there's space for the new cells to go and occupy. Uh, and so in, this, in the case of airway uh, uh, stem cell transplantation, previous studies have shown the use of naphthalene and sulfur dioxide and uh, polydocanol for the, uh, the transplantation of these cells. Uh, however, uh, you can't give a person naphthalene or sulfur dioxide. So we were really also thinking about what are clinically applicable methods to ablate uh, the sinuses so that you can transplant these cells. A lot of the conditioning regimen work was done by Dr. Don Bravo, who's a very close collaborator in the NIAC lab. Um, and, and then I was focused on screening uh, the biomaterials that we could, we could use to hold these cells in place. So there are, again, different factors you can consider when you're looking at biomaterials. So we considered uh, the ability of these materials to support cell survival and cell growth. And then uh, we also then look, considered whether they were capable of facilitating tissue re regeneration, or at least not hindering tissue regeneration, uh, whether they were compatible with existing delivery technologies, and whether they're clinically compatible, as in whether we they're safe, uh, or whether we have to have any special considerations for putting these in, into, into a human. Uh, and so using these considerations, we identified uh, these materials listed here. Uh, and so we evaluated these materials for their ability to support cell survival and growth. And we use matrigel as a positive control. So matrigel is a mouse tumor-derived uh, matrix that works really well in vitro, but it's really not clinically compatible because of how it's derived. Uh, and, and so we uh, compared the ability of these other materials to cell, support cell proliferation uh, in a manner that's compa comparable to matrigel. And so if you look at this chart here, you can see that fibrinogen and biosilk really uh, support the, the proliferation of airways 
case stem cells at a level comparable to what you see in Matrigel. And Biosilk, just for clarity, is a, a laminin functionalized spider silk that's commercially available. And then Fibrinogen is an interesting uh, option because it's a product that's already used clinically, it's a human clotting factor. So you really don't have any concerns about immune reactions. It's already used in wound sealants, particularly in sinus surgeries. Uh, and fibrin collagen gels have previously been reported for making vascular grafts and animal models. And there's a lot of room to engineer gel composition and gelation kinetics if needed, right? Uh, and so we wanted to look beyond just proliferation. We wanted to see if the cells maintain their stem-like properties when cultured in these materials. So we looked at the expression of cytokeratin-5 and P63, which are two common markers for airway stem cells. And so you can see both in fibrinogen and biosilk, over 80 to 90% of these cells express both cytokeratin-5 and P63. And the level of cyto and the, the fraction of cells expressing cytokeratin-5 and P63 are comparable to the fraction of cells expressing those markers when cultured using matrigel. So we were pretty happy with both of these materials. And so then we wanted to evaluate uh, whether these materials work effectively in an in vivo setting. So to test this first, we wanted to manipulate the cells as little as possible. So we found a mouse that uh, has been engineered to express GFP and luciferase in all of its tissues. And we took the upper airway stem cells from these uh, mice. And then uh, Don Bravo looked at different injury models, so mechanical, polydocanol, and sulfur dioxide-based injury to see if we can transplant these cells using those models. And indeed, uh, when we used uh, Matrigel as our sort of delivery vehicle to test the engraftment of these cells uh, using these models, she found successful engraftment using all of the injury models that were tested here. Um, and so that was really promising. Uh, and then because mechanical injury, so we want to use mechanical injury in patients eventually. However, uh, it's really hard to do surgeries in mice because they're really tiny and their sinuses are even tinier. So we, for just for the sake of practicality, we used polydocanol for further studies that I'm going to show here. But when we go into our clinical sort of studies in the future, it's going to be a mechanical debridement that's going to be performed by the surgeon. But in this study, I took these GFP luciferase uh, expressing cells from mice, uh, and then I looked at whether fibrinogen biosil could be used to transplant them uh, at a level that was comparable to what we would see in matrigel. And so you can see here in these pictures that the luminescence that you see in mice transplanted using fibrinogen and biosil uh, is very comparable to the luminescence you see from mouse that's transplanted using matrigel. And then uh, here the graph is showing the signal over 60 days. So you can see that uh, the mice transplanted using both fibrinogen and matrigel show stable signal for uh, about 60 days, whereas the mouse transplanted with biosilk shows a really large drop that really quite doesn't recover. Uh, so, you know, so when we looked at this data and when you consider the fact that fibrinogen is an endogenous human protein, we thought that that is the most promising material to move forward with in our studies. And so um, oh, but then before we get to that point, we also sacked these mice and uh, so euthanized these mice and then uh, uh, sectioned the tissue to look at the colonization of uh, the cells, right? And so the first sort of encouraging signal that we got, and so these images were taken by Don Bravo. So the first sort of encouraging signal we got was that uh, we could see a very clear GFP signal in the mouse sinus and nowhere else. So that was really promising. And then when we did the histology, uh, you could see that there's this really nice GFP positive airway epithelium that was generated in the sinus by our transplanted cells, and they do express the other canonical airway.
airway markers like cytokeratin 5 and alpha tubulin. So this was really exciting. Uh, and, and so in the, the, fur the, the next slides I'm going to show you, uh, we wanted to look at the transplantation of human cells using fibrinogen. And so here we took upper airway basal stem cells from human donors, engineered them to express GPN and elusiferase, uh, and then we transplanted them into immunocompromised mice using fibrinogen uh, after injuring them using polydocanol. And so here I have data from uh, cells obtained from one donor that were transplanted into four different mice. So you can see in all of these four different mice that there's a really nice strong signal on day six. And this signal continues to persist for about 55 days in all of these mice. And so the other mice were sacked at that point, but then the one mouse that did survive to that that was kept alive till, till 120 days also showed uh, a strong luciferase signal at the end of that so that was really promising and then we uh, repeated these studies using cells from three other donors and so here you can see in all of these donors uh, these cells uh, show robust engraftment for for anywhere between 60 to 130 days so this is really promising and so we're in the process of uh, uh, collecting the tissue from all of these mice and looking at the organization of the transplanted human stem cells in the sinus cavities of these mice. So to summarize, what I've shown you today is that we can use genome editing to replace the entire CFTR cDNA in airway stem cells, and that this does result in a non-CF level restoration of CFTR function in in vitro. Uh, and then uh, we we have. Uh, strong proof of engraftment in our uh, preliminary studies uh, uh, in immunocompromised mouse models. Uh, so we have an ability, we think we have the ability to now transplant these corrected airway stem cells into at least immunocompromised mouse models. Uh, and then I didn't talk about this too much today. So the you know, we have considered the safety of editing. So we have looked at uh, the enrichment of tumor-causing uh, tumor genes uh, uh, in the corrected stem cells, and we don't see the enrichment of any tumor-causing genes. And then we also looked at the off-target activity of the guide RNA associated with this correction strategy, uh, and then we don't have any reason to be concerned about off-target activity uh, using this guide RNA. Um, and so moving forward, we are thinking about this as a therapeutic modality for treating CF sinus disease in patients not eligible for modulator therapies, uh, either due to their genotype or due to other contraindications. Uh, the way we envision this therapy is that uh, the patients would go to their ENT surgeon where they would their sinus would get debrided, and then we would get the debrided tissue and isolate the upper airway basal stem cells from this tissue, gene correct them using CRISPR-Cas9, and then the patients would go back to the uh, ENT surgeon after a few weeks, and then the surgeon would debride the sinus again to make space for the corrected cells, and then uh, they would embed our corrected cells in, in a fibrinogen matrix and administer it to them in the OR. Uh, and so we are in uh, we are preparing to approach the FDA to determine what sort of future studies are required for a phase one clinical trial testing this approach in humans to treat CF sinus disease. And I would like to acknowledge that this is also an effort that's supported by CFTR, CFRI. And so we're very grateful for their support. Uh, and with that, I would like to acknowledge my mentor, Dr. Matt Porteous, for his incredible support over the years. Uh, and then uh, the rest of the CF team in the Porteous lab. Uh, and this, as I mentioned, is an incredibly uh, 
a collaborative effort spanning multiple labs at Stanford and across the US and the world. Uh, and these are all our, all our funding sources. And of course, we're all thinking about how we could use this strategy to treat CF lung disease in the future. So I will continue to work on that, uh, but I will be moving to Nationwide Children's uh, in Columbus, Ohio and uh, in a few days. And I will be hiring scientists of all career stages. So if you're interested, uh, please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, and with that, I'm open for questions. Thank you. Thank you. That was very, that was a whirlwind presentation of your work. It was very, very cool. Thanks. Um, do we have any, uh, any questions to be fed to me from the chat? And I don't uh, see any right now. So um, let's see, what questions did I have? How are you going to carry this forward working from Ohio? That's my, that's my main well, question. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, so the, the CF sinus uh, trial is uh, going to be led from Stanford. So Dr. Porteous, is, uh, Dr. Porteous and Dr. Nyack and the rest of the CF team, uh, are they're going to be uh, mainly taking over the, the, the CF sinus disease trial. I'll continue to be involved in it, uh, but uh, my efforts would be focused more on taking this technology and applying it to the law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that was my other um, thought was... Um... So correcting sinus disease is fantastic. Um, of course, everyone wants their lungs corrected. <laughs> yes. So how do you envision um, getting, getting the, or do you envision a similar process of taking cells out, uh, correcting them, putting them back in? And if so, how would you manage the putting back in part? Yes. So obviously, I mean, I completely recognize it's sort of a tall order, uh, but I think one approach would be to sort of stage it, right? Like, so you start with the nose and so maybe you try to move down to the trachea or the main stem bronchi and see what sort of a correction or what level of restoration is sufficient in either of these uh, regions in the airway uh, and, and whether that's sufficient to improve the phenotype that you see in the lungs, right? Uh, and so you can imagine that if you you know, correct like a portion of the bronchial epithelium, perhaps, then you have enough chloride secretion that loosens up the mucus a little bit that it improves the outcomes in these patients, right? So, so one way of sort of uh, testing this is to just inch forward little by little to see if uh, we can, you know, replace at least the large airways first and, and then assess how we could go into the small airways. So that's kind of one way uh, we're thinking about that. Um, okay, now I do have a few. Um, Andrea Carter wants to know, will they do this in adults? Oh, the uh, sinus studies. Is, is this plan, I would imagine, in adults, not children? Yes, so that the phase one clinical trial, uh, I think, would initially involve mostly adults. I think there's a plan to include um, a few pediatric cases towards the end if the adult uh, patients are doing well and it's safe and everything, but... Yeah, it's, it's going to be mostly in adults. Okay. Um, okay, Dr. Jonas wants to know, says, amazing talk and exciting work, Shaviram. Maybe I missed it, but I'm curious whether you need to control the biodegradability of your scaffolds. 
Yes, so that was definitely a factor. So if you look at our uh, cell stem cell paper from 2020, we had started with a porcine small intestinal mucosal membrane, and we don't talk about it anymore because uh, we tried it in the in vivo studies and we weren't seeing that great of an engraftment. And we think it's because the membrane was too thick. So there's definitely a sweet spot. The nice thing about fibrinogen was even in vitro uh, at the concentrations we were using, the gel was gone within 24 to 48 hours. And, and, you know, and fibrinogen has like pro-angiogenic properties uh, and, and pro-regenerative properties. And so uh, those were sort of the additional factors we considered when we were, you know, when we decided to go with fibrinogen, right? And it's also degraded and endogenously by your body, right? You have an existing pathway to degrade fibrinogen. Uh, and so those were all the factors that made us go with fibrinogen. Okay. Uh, let's see. Krista Ising says, I've had over 17 sinus surgeries. When might the spike be trial get? She wants to know sort of a timetable. Everyone always wants to know. <laughs> when yes. we <laughs> so we're hoping uh, it, it's hard to give a timetable, but like a lot of it is going to be determined by how the conversations with the FDA go and how much further studies uh, they want. Right. So we are hoping it may be in the next few years, uh, but I hope, you know, you might have to stay tuned for maybe next year's edition of uh, the CFR research conference to, to, to have a further update on when the trial might be coming up. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how this pre-IND thing with the FDA goes, um, just re relating it to what has happened in, in other disease entities? Yes, I, I definitely can. Uh, although I don't have personal experience uh, having in going through one, but there have been other uh, sort of similar trials that have gone through from Stanford. So one was for sickle cell disease. Uh, and, and so here they showed uh, uh, proof of uh, efficacy in vitro and then uh, uh, proof of safety in vivo in mouse models. And then the combination of those two were sufficient for uh, for the FDA to then agree to a phase one clinical trial. Obviously, there were other sort of uh, studies done to ensure that they could manufacture a sufficient quantity of cells, and then they could do this reproducibly in a, you know, in a, in a, in a manner where, where the product is generated in like a clinically safe environment, GMP compatible environment and all of that, right? Uh, so, so that is an example of a, a therapy for sickle cell disease. Uh, and I think I miss, I think the Stanford one had extra data from an in vivo model, but the one from CRISPR therapeutics, I believe they had in vitro proof of efficacy and in vivo proof of safety. Uh, and so our hope is that the FDA would agree to a sort of similar level of proof. Uh, now, uh, if uh, the conversation goes into needing like testing this in an animal model, like the CF pig model or the ferret model, then that might prolong the timeline for um, the phase one trial. Does yeah, that if, it, it does. If the FDA does say that we need a large animal um, study first, uh, how long do you um, imagine that prolonging the timetable? Uh, it might be a few years. I want to say like at least two to three years because uh, it, it's going to require uh, generation of completely new reagents that would be compatible with the pig or the ferret uh, CFTR gene. Uh, and then so that's, you know, you have to go back to the drawing board to make new reagents. Right, right. Um, okay, Jessica Scarthy asks, um, 
How will the corrected cells be embedded back into the sinuses in the patients? Yeah, so the idea is, again, uh, the they would go into the e ER with their ENT, and then the ENT surgeon is going to debride their sinus epithelium, and that debrided tissue is going to serve as our source for stem cells, and we're going to correct that. Uh, and then uh, the, the, e the ENT surgeon is also going to receive the corrected cells, and they're also going to get the fibrinogen matrix, and then the patient is go going to go back to the ENT surgeon, uh, and then so they're going to have a second surgery to get their sinus epithelium debrided. And then after the second surgery, the surgeon is going to insert the corrected cells along with the fibrinogen gel into the sinus. So the fibrinogen is going to hold the corrected cells in, the, in their sinus uh, for a couple of days uh, and give them time to migrate out into the sinus and reform that epithelium. Okay, and the, what you probably said this, but I missed it. The time interval between the initial debridement and then the going back in uh, and reimplantation. It's probably going to be a few weeks. Would be my okay assessment okay. rate. <clears throat> okay, uh, let's see. Do you need to? Sorry about my dogs. Do you need to clean out the bacteria first? Yes, uh, that is definitely a factor that we're considering very seriously. Uh, so there's probably going to be, uh, you know, like cleaning, but then also like some course of antibiotics and things like that to make sure that uh, there's no sort of uh, bacteria in the bloodstream and things like that. I muted my dogs and myself. Isn't it true that within these, uh, the, these sinus surgeries, they, you know, they debride the sinuses and then they inject antibiotic. They, yeah, yeah. I think it's, yeah, I'm not a clinician. I think that's standard practice, but, you know, we might have like an extra course or we might add or something like that. So that's going to be defined a little bit more. I think we need to talk to Dr. Nike a little bit more to get the actual details of how that part is going to be structured, but there's definitely a, a lot of thought going into preventing uh, any sort of uh, infection in the area when we're transplanting the cells, because that's also not a good thing when we're transplanting. Like it's not a good thing for the corrected cells, right? You wanna give them a clean environment to colonize uh, so that they have the, the maximal chance for uh, successfully engrafting in that tissue. Mm -hmm. um, I I don't have any more, but I now I'm just kind of thinking of them off the mm -hmm. spur of the moment. So let's say, you know, you, you're correcting the sinus cells, and then you move down and try the trachea. Mm -hmm. Do you kind of do serial biopsies or something to figure out like how far distally the correction has moved, and then kind of inch your way down the airstream that way? Or like, how would this work? <laughs> yeah, that is a good question. That is something we have to think about a little bit more carefully, right? Uh, so I think in the sinus, uh, the plan would be to do like a brush biopsy or something like that. Uh, to to and and you can probe for the fraction of uh, uh, genomes that have the CD19 tag or the corrected cDNA tag. Right, uh, and so you could uh, just use like regular genomics methods to to estimate the fraction of corrected cells. So you could potentially do like a brushing of the trachea at different levels, so bronchi at different levels, which is all routinely done anyways. So you could sort of evaluate something like this in those patients, right? Uh, I would say this that like the tracheal, like going into the trachea or the bronchi is you know 
several yeah. several years down the line, right? Like those are probably right. going to be done in like animal models and things first because you're going into a riskier organ. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, let me check this to see if anyone else type in your questions. We still have a few minutes if you if you have anything else for Sriram. Okay, if not, thank you very much. Um, I just want to uh, first thank you, Dr. Vaidyanathan, for your very good presentation and your exciting um, news and congratulations on your, your move and good luck. Um, so that will conclude this session. Please return back to the auditorium at 5.15 Pacific or 8.15 Eastern for our award celebration where we're honoring four heroes from our community including our volunteer professional and inspirational adult with CF, while our friend Paul Quinton will present the 2022 Research Legacy Award. So grab a glass of wine or whatever you want and join us for a very special event. Um, and then after the awards uh, celebration, the fun will continue when Emily Schaller and Rock CF Foundation will host a virtual dance party. Um, so please join all of us, well, not me, my back won't dance, but I'll watch. Um, and you can dance like nobody's watching except me. Before the award celebration, we encourage you to visit the booths in the exhibitor hall um, and take some selfies in the photo booth and post them on social media or chat with friends in the lounge. Uh, remember the additional chat feature that Siri uh, spoke earlier about has been added. Um, so if you wanna talk with friends, you can do it there. And the first research presentation tomorrow will start at 9.15 a.m. Pacific, 12.15 Eastern. So come back and uh, hope to see you then. Thank you very much.